Well, good morning uh, to you college students. This is spring break weekend, and so if you're here, I mean, must be pretty dedicated. Uh, I don't know if anyone would be here at this 11 o'clock because it is spring break, uh, but it's good to be together. little history to this chapel. How many of you have been to a service in this chapel? Just raise your hand. Okay, decent amount. So Grace Athens started eight years ago right here in this building, okay? It was uh, 2013. And it was January, and we kept being told that, hey, you should come plant a church here, you know, come out here and and try it out. So we came, and we wanted to hold a service here on campus. And, y'all, we had no clue if even 50 people would show up. We didn't really market it or anything like that. And so we're here, and we're waiting, and we're hoping for 50, and 500 people filled this chapel back in January of 2013. And so for us, it was Kind of confirmation. Okay, Lord, you're doing something here you want us to be a part of. And that's how the church got started, right here in this building. So it's good to be back, even though it's spring break week. Uh, We'll gather every single Sunday here at 9.30 and 11. And so invite some friends uh, that are coming back in town for next Sunday as we get ready for Easter. If you've never been baptized or like me, you were baptized as a baby and really didn't mean anything to you, consider being baptized uh, on Easter and register there on your way out. Real quick, I want to I wanna talk to you honestly as pastor of this church and be really transparent. Do I think we'll be here long? Probably not. We're here because Sini Stovall, original home, our permanent home, uh, still has COVID restrictions. And so we wanted to still find a place we could meet safely indoors. And so thankfully, we're here back at the chapel. I love this place. I have great memories here. But I don't think we're going to be here long. In fact, I'm going to let you in on this. Our staff and our board are aggressively looking at warehouses in Athens to potentially uh, lease so we could have a 24-7 home in ministry, okay? So here's what I need you to do. When you drive around Athens, listen to some music, hanging out, I want you to keep your eyes open. And if you see any warehouses or any spaces you think, man, Grace Athens, it'd be awesome to be there, come tell us because really the next few months, and maybe it takes longer, maybe it's eight We'd like to move into a more permanent facility. Um, So really excited about that. Okay, so that's really the future that we think uh, we have coming up real, real soon. So there's that. That's where we want to go. I want to talk about where we've been. Where we've been as a community is we've been in one single book of the New Testament, and that is the book of Acts. We've been there seven months. Can you believe it? Seven months. All the way back in August, we started the book of Acts, all 28 chapters. And I'm learning a little bit about barbecue, okay, because I'm getting a little bit older. Just turned 35. And I think when you get older, you're supposed to, like, get a smoker and stuff and start learning about barbecue. I watched on Netflix. How many, how many of you watched the British Baking Show? Just raise your hand. Man, do not be ashamed. I know more of you have watched it. Okay, there's this American version, which is a barbecue show. Okay, so I've been learning. They have this term in barbecue. They say you're supposed to cook the meat low and slow. Low and slow. That's when it's really good. And that's really how we've tackled the book of Acts. We've gone really, really slow. And we've saturated our minds and our lives in each chapter. And so what I want to do today is I want to bring all of that to a close. Over the next two weeks, we're going to end this long journey we've been in the book of Acts, okay? So we're going to look at the last two chapters today. Here's the goal, y'all, and you know this well. The goal is not to simply study the book of Acts, 
but to now live the book of Acts. It's not, as James says, the brother of Jesus, to just hear the word. It's to do the word. And so I couldn't be any prouder of what's happened here. Just let me remind you of this. I know it's spring break and most of the folks aren't here, but just let me remind you guys. When we started the book of Acts, there was zero missional communities or house churches, whatever word you want to use, that we had here at the church. Zero at the beginning of the fall semester. We started reading the book of Acts and we said, hey, the real way to do church is not just to get together on Sunday, but it's to have these little communities that get in the word and, and live on mission and, and, and build friendship. That's the real way to do it. That's what we see here in the book of Acts. We went from zero to 12 missional communities that are on campus and spread throughout the city of Athens and Watkinsville, which is just phenomenal during a pandemic. Okay, so I want to end this series and really season well. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And I want to talk about the overarching story in the book of Acts today. Okay, we're going to do it pretty quickly, actually. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Take you back to the beginning. Right here you have Jesus who's resurrected from the dead and is talking to the disciples, and he's going to share something that really sets up the entire book. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, remember the writer is Dr. Luke, the physician, inspired by the Spirit. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Fast forward to verse 6. So when they had come together, it's the disciples and Jesus, they asked him, Lord, or Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he's going to give this about 120 folks, real small, their big mission. It says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Gives them four places. In Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gives them a really, really big mission and goal. Okay? He's saying, you're going to start this ministry in my name, and it's not just going to be a local thing here in Jerusalem, here in Athens. It's going to expand out into all the other regions. And then, to top it off, he says, this ministry, this new faith, is going to go to the entire world, the ends of the earth. Now, can I be honest with you? If I'm sitting there, if I'm one of the disciples and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking at the team, and there's about 120 of us, guys and girls, pretty young, most of them. And he's saying, we're going to launch this world movement that's going to go all over the world. I'm sitting there. I'm nudging Peter. I'm like, Jesus, out of his mind. <laughs> like, the coach is hyped up today. This is a big pep talk. I mean, we're playing, you know, Alabama or something, all right? Nope, no diss on UGA, right? That's a big mission. That's a big goal, a world movement, Jesus. And let's consider the historical facts of where they were right there in Acts 1. 
of, of kind of the situation they were in. Because when you look at this community and this new faith, it had all the signs of failing before it started. You see that new restaurant that goes up, right? And you're like, oh, man, it looks good. I really need to go there. And you never go there, right? But it looks good. It looks like it's, maybe it's going to make it. Maybe it's not. It doesn't make it. It doesn't pan out. This is what this was like. It was not looking good. You see, when you look at the facts, Jesus was an obscure country carpenter from Nazareth. That is like the sticks. I won't name your county, but if it's in the sticks, Nazareth was further in the sticks, okay? I've been there. I mean, it's out there. He's a carpenter, okay? He's not a rabbi. He's, 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 not, he's not a political figure. He's an obscure country carpenter who spent nearly all of his super brief ministry, only three years, in one single obscure country province called Galilee, okay? There wasn't much happening at the very beginning. In fact, outside of Jerusalem, when he was a baby and at the end of his life, when he was executed, Jesus never went more than 200 miles from his home. I mean, how many of us have just gone over to Florida and gone over 200 miles? Jesus never did. Not only that, when Jesus was executed by the Roman state, his followers numbered maybe in a few hundred, and that's generous. This church is made up on a you know, normal situation far more than the beginnings of the Christian faith. It had all the signs of failing before it got started. Look at, let me show you some more facts. Let me give you these statistics. Right here, this is from a historian and sociologist named Rodney Stark at Baylor University. He writes this, in 100 AD, there may have been only 700 Christians in Rome, but by 300 AD, there was 300,000 Christians. 66% of Rome became followers of Jesus. Can you imagine if 66% over that quick a time became followers of Jesus in Atlanta. Let's go to the next one. In 40 AD, there may have been 1,000 Christians in the entire Roman Empire, biggest empire ever, tons of different nation states. But by 350 AD, there was 32 million Christians, or 53% of the entire empire. What happened? That is serious. Any of you guys in business school? I mean, that is serious exponential growth. Christianity, the Jesus movement, exploded in the ancient world. And so we want to ask, how? How did that happen? I'm asking you to put the, put the thinking cap on, as they told us in kindergarten. How did this happen? Well, you read the book of Acts, and you might ask, well, was it the, uh, was it the apostles? Right? I mean, these pretty powerful individuals. Was it the apostles that helped Christianity explode like that? Was it all the miracles that we read about in the book of Acts? I mean, you know, if, if a, a band of Christians went and prayed for someone who just died at a funeral and God brought them back to life, I mean, I think a few people would come to know Jesus. Right? If uh, a star player at UGA gets knocked out from an injury and someone goes and prays for him, like, 
in the book of Acts, a miracle happens, I think there'd be a few people that would notice, right? But I don't think it's just the miracles. And I don't even think it was all the missional communities and house churches that got started in Acts, in Antioch and in Jerusalem. I don't think it was that. Ultimately, it was Christ. Christ Jesus was the one through the miracles and the people and the communities that made Christianity explode on the world stage. So, Acts 1.8 is basically the table of contents for the entire book. Remember, we've read it all. So what do you have there? He says, Jesus says, first you'll start the ministry in Jerusalem. Chapters 1 through 7 are the ministry in Jerusalem in Acts. Then he says, you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. Chapters 8 through 12 are their ministry in Judea and Samaria. People are coming to faith. People are being healed. Friendships are being started in the Lord's name. Then he says the ends of the earth. What does that mean? It means all ethnicities, all people. So what you have there is then in chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 28, the movement starts to spread to all ethnicities outside of just the Jewish people. Okay? And then... Jesus says, I want to take the ministry to Rome. Rome was the seat of power. Everyone's been in history class. Hopefully you read about Rome. You weren't daydreaming. I did a lot of daydreaming when I was in school, and my grades will show it. All right? I don't know how to end with the best GPA. All right? So don't do that. But what you learned about Rome was Rome was the most powerful empire ever created. It had trade systems and road systems that we still use today. Had massive influence. So if you want to start a world movement, you go to the place of influence. You go to Rome. Jesus knew this. Of course he did. And so he tells Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome to begin the ministry. Look there in verse, let's, let's bring that up. Verse, uh, chapter 23. What you find is, we read this before. We, we did a whole Sunday on this. And... Paul is in a riot. He's being mobbed. And look what happens. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Watch what happens. The following night, the Lord, that would be Jesus, stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, that's quite a Tuesday night, isn't it? Right? You're going to bed, and all of a sudden you have a visitation from the resurrected Jesus Christ, a supernatural phenomena where Jesus is standing right next to you and telling you, I'm going to send you to Rome. I don't know about you. When I was in college, my nights, you know, they were, they were, they were pretty interesting. They were fun. I had a bunch of roommates. Now, I got two kids, three on the way. My wife is due any moment. If I run out of here, it's because baby Judd is coming. But my, my nights are pretty simple now. I drink tea at night, all right? I mean, they're, they're pretty simple. I read a book, and I hang out with my wife, which is a great time. Uh, but this is quite a night. Jesus stood next to him and said, I'm going to send you to Rome. Not only that, I want to show you the next uh, passage. Let's go to chapter 27. Again, Jesus is the one pushing the movement. He says uh, to Paul, Paul is on his way to Rome, finally, but there's a terrible shipwreck that happens, and Paul's trying to encourage the folks on the ship, and he says to them, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, 
And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must also stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Right. So not only does Jesus visit him, an angel visits him from the Lord Jesus and says, don't worry, you're going to Rome because I want this movement of my kingdom to reach the ends of the earth. And so he does it. Paul finally gets into Rome, and this is where Luke is going to end the book and where we're going to end it over the next two weeks. Turn with me to Acts 28. I want to show you the last two verses, the very end of the book. I'll tell you right now, it's not much of an ending. It's actually quite a terrible ending. He doesn't wrap things up. There's no conclusion. Verse 30. He, being Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. That's it. You don't know what happens to Paul. You don't get to hear about Paul's address to Caesar where he witnesses to Christ. You don't know what happens to the apostles. You don't know what happens to all the other churches and Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia. Nothing. It just ends. Now, why does Luke do that? Luke was a very bright man, inspired by the Spirit, a doctor. I don't know if you have some doctor friends, but they're, they're pretty meticulous. I like doctors. They keep me out of, out of trouble, right? Luke is, he's a bright man. Why does he do this? Why does he give it no ending? Here's the reason. Because Acts isn't supposed to end. Acts isn't a story with an ending because new chapters are to be written by Christ and his church today. We're living Acts we're living in all these missional communities. You're living the book of Acts. And so that's why Paul, excuse me, Luke, purposefully doesn't give it an ending. He lets it be open-ended because Acts 29 and 30 and 31 and 40 and 50 and now Acts 2021 are still being written by Christ and the church. What you find right here, if we look at just the next few chapters, the next few centuries of the church, what happened is that Christianity exploded on the world stage. Exploded. In fact, if you, if you do good historical reading, this is what you're going to find. I did this a few years ago. What you're going to find is so many of the things we enjoy today and the values we have find their roots in Jesus and in the Christian movement. Sometimes we get a little funny about being a Christian. We get a little private about it, right? We don't like to share. We feel a little embarrassed. Christianity might feel a little bit outdated sometimes, especially at the university, right? But so many of the things we now value come from Jesus and the movement. Let me tell you a few. Human rights, right? Women equality, child's rights, they come from Jesus and the Jesus. Let's talk about children. Children were the very lowest rung on the social ladder in Jesus' day. They were treated as property. Treated as property. So here's what would happen. Children were kept out of certain scenarios and situations. You know the story in the Gospels. 
Jesus is teaching. Some kids come up. They want to see him. The disciples operating out of the cultural paradigm at the time said, no, 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 get back, get back. Jesus sees that he's, they're keeping the kids back. They're treating the kids as property. That was just the norm in the Roman Empire at the time. In ancient history, what does Jesus do? It says in the Gospels, he got indignant. That's the word, furious. And he yells at the disciples and says, stop that. Let the children come to me. And the children come running up to Jesus and he hugs them and he laughs with them and he prays with them. And he even says this, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom, you got to become like a child. He takes the social ladder and flips it on its head. And he says, no, children are precious in the eye of God. Jesus was way ahead of his time. You know what happened? And that day, sadly, when a daughter was born and families usually just wanted male heirs, they would take a daughter and they would leave her out to die. It was called exposure. But because Jesus valued all children and he taught that to his followers, the very first orphanages that ever came into existence came from Christians. Because they said this, if you don't want your daughters, we'll take them. The very first orphanages came from this. You know, this story, let's talk about women, women's rights and their equality, all made in the image of God. Check out this one. You know the story of Martha and Mary, right? We usually kind of get that one a little wrong. It means a lot of things. One of the things it means is this. You know the scene. Jesus is, is, is teaching. He's educating. Back in that time, education was only for men. So there was a hall filled with men sitting at his feet. Who's there? Mary is there. What's Martha doing, her sister? She's in the kitchen getting everything ready and serving the men who are the only ones that could be educated. What does Jesus do? Martha comes in, complains. Imagine Mary sitting there in a sea of other men, the only woman in the room, and she comes in and she says, Jesus, Jesus, what is she doing? She thinks she's a man. Tell her to get in the kitchen with me and help serve. What's Jesus' response? Way ahead of his time. He says, no, no, no. What Mary has chosen is the better thing, and it won't be taken from her. Let her stay. Jesus, way ahead of any culture, any ethics. He knew all people, men and women, are created equal in God's sight. Not only human rights, but the first hospitals came out of the Christian movement when the plagues were happening in the Christian state and wanted to help those who were infected. Not only that, universities came out of the Christian movement. So many of these big universities were founded by followers of Jesus. Not only that, I could go on and on and on. The sciences came from the faith. Think about this, the billions of people, the souls that have experienced salvation and healing and transformation in every part of them, from their soul, their mind, their psyche, their eternity, that have been changed and touched by this one person and this one movement called the Christian faith. There has been nothing like it on the world stage. What about the next few chapters of Acts, the ones that are being written now? So often we think, oh, the church, oh, the church is struggling. Oh, no, where's it going? What's going to happen to it? Well, the church across the globe is exploding. Let me show you if we could bring that statistic. 
This is according to a, a research study by Pew Research in 2015. They said by 2050, the Christian population is expected to grow past 3 billion people. I love this one. By 2050, Africa will be the home to 1.25 billion Christians. In a few decades, more than one in eight people in the world will be an African Christian. Let me put that in context to you. When you go to the airport, you know, like when it's safe and everything, and you go to the airport, one out of the eight people you meet will be an African Christian. How cool is that? Lastly, churches will number 7.5 million in 2025 and 9 million in 2050, according to very conservative projections. Christ is alive and is active and is doing his benevolent work in our world, even in the midst of a pandemic. I want to end by showing you one of my favorite poems. It's called One Solitary Life, and it's about Jesus. Remember at the beginning we said, didn't look good, humble beginnings, don't know if it's going to become a movement, and it has. Take a look at this poem. He, being Jesus, was born in an obscure village. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. He then became an itinerant preacher. He never held office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the public turned against him. 19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Jesus. Jesus. So this morning... As we start in-person services again and even on spring break week as we're coming back together, I just want to start by calling us back to our founder, the Lord Jesus, to rejoice in who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And for us to be proud in the healthy sense of the word, to be a part of his kingdom and a part of his church. What's happening in these missional communities, I believe his hand is behind it. And we celebrate that this morning. Not only that, I want to call us back to the Lord's table, to the Lord's body and bread. We're going to take communion this morning. Our volunteers are going to safely hand those out to you right there where you are. I don't know what this year has been like for you. Maybe 2020 was tough and 2021 is even more tough. But you're here today, even in spite of spring break. And what we all need is to be nourished again by the Lord Jesus, by his spirit. That's why communion is food. When you eat food, you get nourished, you get energy. Jesus used this symbol to encapsulate what a relationship with him looks like. When we come to his table expectant and joyful and happy in him and even desperate at times, he feeds us with himself. That night he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup that night with the disciples and he gave thanks to God. And he said, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant, which will be shed for you and for all. Drink of it. And so as we end this last song of worship, As you receive the elements, and we can go ahead and we can go ahead and hand those out. 
at any point during this song, just have a moment of prayer with the Lord. And then at your own time, you can take those elements and receive from him. If you came with some friends and you're sitting together, or a spouse, why don't you pray together and then take communion as a family or just on your own. So let's stand together. Let's worship this Lord Jesus, our King. And at any moment, when you feel the time is right, go ahead and receive from him. Lord, we sing to you now. We call on your name. We rejoice in you. We're proud to be a part of your kingdom and your movement. God, we ask that you continue to touch this city, touch this university. God, continue to bring those into the faith. Continue to heal. Continue to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Continue to set people free in your freedom, Lord. We sing to you and we rejoice in you now, in your name. Amen. Let's worship.